says, so let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you've died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations such as do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Father, we humbly pause and just ask, help us now to continue in the worship of you as we submit our hearts and minds to the word of God that we might have an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular section of your word as we study it this morning. Lord, may your Holy Spirit help us to hear and to see every intent behind why you recorded these things for us and speak to our hearts in individual and personal and powerful ways this day and we ask in jesus name everyone said amen amen you may be seated you know i think we've all probably heard this statement before don't complicate things in fact in regards to this idea of complicating things listen to a quote or two that i found regarding complicating things one man said life is very simple and easy to understand, but we tend to complicate it with beliefs and ideas that we create. Another person said this, I probably complicate things unnecessarily just to give the impression of professionalism. You know, when I read those things, it made me think, I think the same concepts really apply to the spiritual life because the spiritual life is intended to be truly simple. The Bible says we're supposed to have childlike faith. Uh, the, the takes the faith of a child that we're supposed to be childlike in our understanding of God and, and Jesus and the simple claims of the gospel. And the spiritual life is intended to be very easy to understand, to enjoy. But unfortunately, we tend to complicate it with beliefs and ideas that we create oftentimes. We tend, I think, in the same way as well, sometimes to complicate things spiritually as well just to give the impression of spirituality. And sometimes we can be guilty. You know, we start out loving the Lord. We get saved and it's so simple and we're just reading the Bible and and God's talking to us and we're just in love with Jesus and worshiping whenever we have an opportunity to. And then as we mature in the Lord we almost begin to create these little lists of do's and don'ts and we pick up these patterns and habits and formulas and sometimes we do it subconsciously almost trying to create an impression of spirituality or holiness in some ways. Well, this section, God is warning us not to complicate the spiritual life. That's the point here. 
If you miss the point in the midst of some of the verbiage that Paul uses that can get a little complex, he doesn't want us to become misguided from what God intends of the simplicity of the spiritual life that was intended originally by God. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul warns the believers there of Satan seeking to pull us away, he says, from the simplicity that is in Christ. Interesting, even that Satan would seek to pull us away from the simplicity the simplicity that's supposed to be in Christ. Well, we've seen so far in the first two chapters here, after presenting the supremacy of the importance of Jesus over all things, and after just now talked about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for all that we need for a complete spiritual experience with God, that Jesus gives us complete forgiveness of sins, complete victory over sin, Paul now in these last few verses of chapter 2 is going to start to refute specifically the errors that were being presented among the Colossian church of these false teachers that we've talked about called the Gnostics who were trying to lead people into their system of beliefs but were leading them away from the person of Christ in so doing. And Paul really zeroes in now on this Gnostic teaching. Remember we said the word Gnostic was a reference to one who claimed to arrive or possess a higher form of knowledge, gnosis. And they claimed to have this deeper, fuller, higher experience of knowledge. And they could supposedly, therefore, bring others into this deeper gnosis or this deeper spirituality that they had somehow arrived at. And as mentioned, Gnostic heresy was basically a mixture of human ideas and doctrines of men. It was kind of a combination of Jewish ritualism and legalism with some Greek philosophy and then they threw into it a little bit as well of what's called asceticism. And asceticism is basically just the deprival of all bodily appetites and really just severe self-discipline where you avoid every indulgence possible to somehow make yourself more spiritual. And so it was kind of this mixture of these different ideas taken from the law and Jewish ritualism and Greek philosophy and asceticism and mysticism, all kind of wound together and Paul now is going to warn the Christian to beware of these errors in thinking that they don't creep in to the spiritual life so the first warning that we see and it shows up in verse 16 and 17 here in our text is really a warning to beware of legalism to beware of legalism Paul says look at it in verse 16 he says so let no one judge you and that's always the heart of legalism a judgmental attitude let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, he says, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, the reality is of Christ. Now, as we talk about the danger of legalism here, some of us understand exactly what that word means, but legalism is basically the excessive, strict adherence to a system of rules or regulations it's strict adherence to maybe some formula of what's been created with the belief that your strict adherence to that formula or your strict adherence to that list of rules of do's and don'ts or regulations make you more spiritual or actually give you a greater measure of holiness because you don't do these things, you're therefore more holy. Or because you do these specific things, that makes you more holy or righteous or spiritual. That's really the essence of what legalism is. And sadly, it's a, it's a confrontation of the gospel of grace. 
Because it says that something needs to be done when the reality is Jesus said it is finished. It's all been done. But legalism can be a problem that creeps into the child of God's life. You know, the danger of the Christian is we can backslide into sin or we can front slide into legalism. And I don't know about you, but in some ways I find sometimes I'm a natural born legalist. I kind of like rules and regulations. And so I can easily gravitate towards that. But that's something the Bible warns us to be aware of. Paul's seeking here in verse 16 and 17 to show that legalism is really based in a judgmental spirit that causes people to misjudge two things he's going to point out in verse 16 and 17 to misjudge the importance of observing rituals and religious practices and also to misjudge the value of a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ who's the basis, he says, verse 17, of what everything in spiritual life is about. Look what he says again in verse 16. He says, let no one judge you in food or drink regarding a festival or a new moon or the Sabbath. So he's warning the believers there not to fall prey to allowing themselves to be judged spiritually due to their observation of number one, special diets, and number two, he's going to say, of worshiping on specific days or specific dates or times. He says there in verse 16, let no one judge you. And the word Paul uses there in the original for, for judge is a reference to someone who would sit in a place of judgment and pronounce a verdict regarding the condition of what was true about another person. And so Paul says here, listen, we are commanded by God, he says, not to allow any person to draw a conclusion or pronounce a verdict about our spiritual condition based upon our religious or spiritual activities or practices. That, that we would never allow somebody to draw a conclusion and say, you are spiritual or you're not spiritual based upon your religious practices or what you do or what you don't do. And the first area Paul warns about is the observance of a special diet. You see it there in verse 16. He says, no one judge you in food or drink. That is regarding what you eat. Now, this would be helpful for them, again, because for the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, under the Mosaic law and that covenant, God did give to the Jews, Leviticus chapter 11 very clearly specifies, a, a dietary code that they were to follow as God's chosen people. Leviticus chapter 11 describes an instruction how God had given to them certain animals that were acceptable or deemed clean to eat from a dietary perspective and there were other animals that were deemed unclean and unacceptable that they were to refrain from eating so there was this list of dietary restrictions that the Jew was to follow under the Mosaic covenant they were also told not to drink blood now that dietary code certainly was given to the Jewish people initially to set them apart as God's covenant chosen people in a relationship with him. And it was one of the ways they distinguished themselves from the pagan people who did not know Yahweh God, who ate blood sacrifices and, and had really vile practices in the things that they did. It sort of set them apart and identified them as God's chosen people. It also, we know, certainly had important health benefits, especially in the day and age when some of the hygienic practices and things we do now uh, weren't being observed. It, it kept them in a healthy condition protected them from certain things that would be unhealthy for their bodies and it also taught them an appropriate appreciation to honor life 
and to value blood, which, of course, would be given, God said, for the remission of sins. So they weren't to partake of the blood of the animals to recognize. Now, when Jesus came, he didn't set aside the law, but the Bible says he came to fulfill it. And he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, liberating mankind from living under the demands of the law any longer. Romans chapter 10 verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone now who believes. To believe upon Christ is how we receive our righteousness. So, biblically, there is no longer a need to observe any dietary regulation that, in a sense, was, was put aside with the work of Christ. Jesus himself even mentioned regarding eating food that eating food had no influence upon a person's spiritual condition or upon their spiritual standing. Listen to the words of Jesus himself, who was God, the same God who gave the dietary restrictions in Leviticus 11. Jesus said in Mark 7, Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? It can make you gain weight, but it won't defile you. He says, because it does not enter his heart, that is the food, but his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, Jesus said, purifying all foods. So again, Jesus himself, as God declared all foods pure and clean to be taken of as partaken of as one wishes. First Timothy four, interesting where the Bible is warning first Timothy four of doctrines of demons and deceiving spirits, it says this, these doctrines of demons and deceiving spirits, 1 Timothy 4 says, forbid to marry, interesting, and command to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. I say, hallelujah, that makes Thanksgiving really fun. If you say thanks, you can eat what you want, the Bible says. Amen. So the Bible's clear. There's no special diet that, you know, in a sense, makes a person more holy or can make a person more spiritual or that if you eat in a certain way with this restriction or, you know, eat these things or don't eat that, that somehow that makes you more holy or, or in some... And 1 Corinthians 8 says it this way, food does not bring us closer to God nor are we worse if we eat or better, no, better if we don't eat or better if we do. And, and I want to say this, be aware because sometimes, and I see specifically in the modern culture, sometimes there is this sort of you know, sense of trying to connect physical health or natural remedies to spirituality. And sometimes there's almost this idea that's believed that if I you know, live in this very natural homeopathic way and, 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 and I, 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 that, that somehow confers a, like a, a, a spirituality that a person becomes more superior than these you know, people who eat all this processed, gross, disgusting, unnatural. And, and, and we need to be careful of that because sometimes I've seen that creep into the church. Quite frankly, I'm going to say this. I see some people, they're more concerned and put more time, effort, and energy into their physical diet and health condition than they do their spiritual diet. Amen. They're more concerned about what they eat and don't eat and how they shop and don't shop and what they buy and cook. And that, Do you spend that much time reading your Bible? Praying? Worshiping? Serving the Lord? Some people spend more time in the gym than they do exercising their self towards godliness. And we need to be very careful. Listen, listen. 
There is nothing. If you want to maintain a certain diet for health purposes or preferences, that's fine. It's wonderful. I think it's being a good steward of your body. Nothing wrong with that at all. But don't think somehow that confers a greater measure of spirituality or that you've tapped into some biblical code of the right way to you know, eat and so forth that, that no one else is you know, kind of taking consideration of anymore and that somehow you found the original code of how to eat and somehow that makes you more closer to God or spiritual. Just be aware of that because that kind of stuff creeps in sometimes and it can cause a mindset that's not healthy. And, and you know, don't wrongly allow any person ever to judge you regarding what you eat. Or, you know, or, or something of this nature. Again, can I just say, let us focus more on the inner condition of our spirituality. Maybe we should put more focus on what we're ingesting into our minds, looking at, listening to, than we're worried about what we're putting into our stomachs. Because quite frankly, listen, you're all going to die anyway. <laughs> you know, I have a friend that was real super, super healthy, and I used to say to him, when you die, I'll pay you to bury you in my garden because you're going to be like fertilizer, man. Like instant... <laughs> fertilizer you know just you're so uh, he didn't think it was funny but yes I think it's the truth in some ways the second area Paul warns us about is needing to worship on certain or specific days that's what he goes on to mention in verse 16 needing to worship on a specific day or date he says don't let anyone judge you look at it regarding when you worship not just what you eat but when you worship he says regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Now, those were the three times the Jews worshipped God, sort of systematically. The, the festival there is a reference to the times the Jews worshipped God annually, the religious holidays or holy days that God gave to the Jewish people. Leviticus 23, God gave to the Jews seven different occasions annually when they were to cease from what they were doing and to have really a religious holiday and just dedicate themselves to worshiping God seven different times annually during the year. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, Day of Atonement. These were some of the times when they were to cease annually and observe a time of worship. There was also then the new moon and those were the monthly times of worship. Where at the beginning of a month, the first moon marked the first day of the new month on God's calendar, Numbers 28. And they were again to mark the month by having a monthly time of particular worship. And then he references as well, verse 16 as well, regarding Sabbaths. So you have the annual worship times, the monthly worship time. And then the Sabbaths, of course, probably is a reference to those weekly occasions of worship where the Jewish people were instructed by God on the seventh day of the week, the Saturday, that they were from sundown Friday, sundown Saturday, they were to cease from their labor and dedicate that time as holy unto the Lord once a week to rest their bodies, to reflect upon God and to worship. In fact, you should jot in your notes because it is an important verse. Exodus 31, verse 15 to 17. Listen to God's words and covenant regarding the Sabbath for the Jews. He says, work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So for Israel, under the law, they were to observe the Sabbath, and it was a covenant sign, God says, between him and the nation of Israel. That God gave it to them specifically, the Sabbath, that day where they would rest and they would worship God. Now, as Jesus fulfilled all the aspects of the law, again, that means this, we are not under an obligation by God to worship on a set date or a specific time or on a certain day. Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law. We are not required by God to worship on a set day of the week on a certain calendar date that does not exist biblically. Now, we all know there is certainly a group that would seek to judge us, to judge you as a Christian, that you don't worship on a certain day of the week because that is the day you're supposed to worship on. But yet the Bible says such is not true and says don't allow anyone to put you under that bondage. Listen, contrary to what some would say, we are not obligated to observe the Sabbath. That's not biblical. First of all, the Sabbath, I just read it to you, Exodus 31, was a covenant and a sign given to God between him and the nation of Israel. It was a specific covenant sign given to him and to his chosen people Israel, which will be a perpetual sign forever. Secondly, when you look at the Ten Commandments, all the Ten Commandments, nine of them, let me say, are reiterated in some form in the New Testament. The New Testament still says that we shouldn't commit adultery. The New Testament still says we shouldn't steal. The only one of the Ten Commandments that's not reiterated in the New Testament is the Sabbath. The reason why is because Jesus became our Sabbath. He became our Sabbath rest. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but... You may ask, well, okay, then why do we as the church, typically as Christians, traditionally worship on Sunday? Why do we do that? Well, the best that I can tell you is customarily, if you look at the New Testament, that was on the first day of the week, Sunday, when the early church customarily began assembling for times of worship because they were remembering and reflecting the day of Jesus' resurrection, which happened on the first day of the week on Sunday. If you read 1 Corinthians 16, Acts chapter 20, you see that this was typically the day that they were assembling in the early church. And by custom, we tend to still observe worshiping the Lord on Sunday because it's the Lord's day, the, his resurrection day. And we celebrate the resurrection of Christ and what it's accomplished for us. And practically, culturally, it works well because most people don't typically work on Sunday as frequently as they do Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and some also work, obviously, on Saturdays. So it works well. However, hear me, there's no requirement to have to meet for worship on any set day. That's not a biblical mandate that we worship on any specific day. It is not less spiritual to meet on a different day if needed to for practical purposes. You know, think of a number of churches that I know that they start having multiple services on a Sunday and at a certain point they say, well, we got to start a Saturday night service because the Lord's doing too great of a work. Wait a minute. Saturday night service, that's not Sunday. God better stop working. What are they doing meeting now on a Saturday too? I mean, that's just silliness. It's not the day that we worship on, it's who we worship. It's not when we worship, it's who we worship. 
It's worshiping the Lord. In fact, the New Testament says, according to Scripture, we should live a lifestyle of worship. Every day we should worship the Lord in, in different ways that he gives us to. So again, it doesn't make us more or less spiritual if we worship on a certain day or don't worship on a certain day or we have to worship on a certain date on the calendar once in a while. These are things that become very legalistic, unhealthy rules that make a person think they're spiritual when really God says regarding the many regulations of the Old Testament, Look what he says, verse 17. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, the reality, is of Christ. So again, notice, these things are a shadow, even as when a person walks in light and the sun casts light upon them and the sun causes their shadow to then precede their presence, in the same way, Paul's drawing an analogy here. In the same way, the shadow precedes the actual presence of the person themselves who is coming behind their shadow. He says in the same way with the Old Testament laws and the sacrifices God gave and the observances of the rituals and the festivals and feast days they observed. God's intention in all those things, they had a purpose, but more than that, they were a shadow of things that were to come. They were a foreshadowing of what was coming afterwards, foreshadowing Jesus. They were the image of what was coming, the person of Jesus himself, who is the substance. Jesus is the real, meaningful, substantial thing. It's the person of Christ. And again, just by way of example, when you look at those things, the Passover, 1 Corinthians tells us Christ is our Passover. When you look at the celebration of Passover, they applied the blood to the doorposts and the lentil as they killed the sacrificial lamb. And as a result of the lamb being blood applied over where they were, the, the wrath of God, remember, passed over them and they were spared. And so Jesus has become our Passover lamb. Through his shed blood, the wrath of God passes over our life and we're spared and we're delivered out of our bondage in Egypt and brought into the new life that God wants for us. When we think again, as I said, of the Sabbath, and I said in a moment, a moment ago that the Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ, the Sabbath was a picture of Jesus. On the Sabbath day, they ceased from their labor and their work and they rested from all their labors, well, because of the work of Jesus Christ that was completely sufficient to pay for our sins on the cross, in Jesus we cease from all of our religious labors to try and get ourselves right with God. We cease from all of our labor and work to try and keep ourselves in a right relationship with God where we'd be acceptable, and we just rest in Christ. And we just, we, there's a rest, Hebrews 4 says, for the people of God. Jesus said, come to me, all you spiritually, who are weary and heavy laden. He says, take my yoke upon you, you'll find rest for your soul. He's saying, stop working, just rest in me. My work was sufficient. And so these things, again, so many aspects of the Old Testament were foreshadows, foreshadowings of the person of Jesus. Jesus himself said in Luke 24, beginning, uh, excuse me, it says of Jesus, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all things of the scripture concerning himself. Those two men on the Emmaus road, Jesus began to speak to them and he began to point out to them in the Old Testament. It must have been a great Bible study. All the things, do you see that? 
You see how that talks about me there? You see that? That's a picture of me. That, that's a, an illustration of what I was going to accomplish. Look, ladies and gentlemen, that's what makes studying the Old Testament a really fun and enjoyable and insightful thing. Well, I don't read the Old Testament, Old Testament. I, I'm just a New Testament Christian. Well, I understand that. But the bulk of your Bible is an Old Testament. And the more you understand the Old Testament, the more you understand the New Testament, and you begin to see, as we have been on Wednesday night since we started in Genesis and we're in 2 Samuel now, wow, look, that, that speaks of Jesus there. That's a, a reference to the work of Christ, and it makes studying the Old Testament come alive. So again, we don't want to fall prey to the pressures of becoming legalistic in any way, making lists and rules and rituals, formulas. Again, as Paul's saying here, these were a shadow, and why would I want to hug a shadow if I could hold the real person? Paul's saying, why would you want a shadowy formula or ritual if you can have the person of Christ himself? You know, when I travel, I have pictures on my phone here of my family. When I'm away from my family, I might look at the picture and, and, and reflect. But when I come home and I see my wife or my kids, I don't want to look at the picture. I want to embrace them. And see, this is the same way. Why would we want to tie up our spirituality in rules and rituals and formulas when it can be about a meaningful relationship with Christ? And having a personal encounter. That's real spiritual life. God is more concerned about your meaningful relationship with Jesus than he is how well you're doing keeping a list of do's and don'ts of spirituality. Much, much more concerned that you stay relational and intimate with Jesus. The second warning in verse 18 and 19 is to beware of mysticism. Now, when we talk about mysticism, again, that's a term that refers to the idea of how a person can sort of come into relationship or experience with God by deep mental contemplation or experience with spiritual beings in some mystical way. Paul's seeking to caution them here. He says, verse 18, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels intruding into things which he's not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. We know that's a reference to Jesus from Colossians 1. From whom the whole body, that's the church, is nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So Paul here in these verses is seeking to caution the believer not to be robbed from God's best. And, and to be distracted and pulled away from Jesus. He says, verse 18, look at it, let no one cheat you. He says, don't let anybody rob you spiritually. Don't let somebody rip you off from your spiritual reward. And what's that reward? To have direct, intimate fellowship with Jesus himself. And to have an experience with God where you're experiencing the power of God working in your life in a personal way, helping you grow and mature. And he mentions what kind of things in these verses here could rob us spiritually. He's talking about things that could hold us back in our spiritual life, which the Gnostics were proposing. The first thing he mentions that can rob us spiritually in verse 18 is he says, taking delight in false humility. We're enjoying the appearance of being really humble. And is it not true, we all know, some people at times will behave in kind of somber, mystical ways because they like to be perceived as, wow, what a deep, holy man. <laughs> Deeply mystical. He only has 
esoteric thoughts of high and lofty. I mean, and some people, they like this appearance, but the Bible says it's an appearance to get admiration, but the Bible says it's false humility. It's actually pride. You're proud of how deeply spiritual and humble and mystical you are. And you're really trying to get admiration instead of getting people to admire the Lord. And he says, that's not humility. It's an effort to be noticed and to have false humility. And secondly, he mentions another hindrance, and certainly this is true. Look at it there, verse 18. He mentions the worship of angels. This was being proposed by the Gnostic heresy as well, encouraging people towards trusting in angelic mediators relating to the angels in an improper way, looking to angels for help or as a means to get closer to God or praying to angels as some mediator. Look, the Bible forbids the worship of angels. The Bible says that angels are spiritual creatures that God uses to assist the child of God. In fact, Revelation 19, there's an occasion where John is receiving a spiritual revelation. He's so caught up in the experience, it says that John falls down before this angel helping with the revelation and begins to worship that angel. And listen to what happens, Revelation 19.10. John says, I fell at his feet to worship him, the angel. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant. And he says, worship God. So an angel refuses worship. That angel said, worship God, do not worship me. Listen, be very careful, ladies and gentlemen, of any temptation, idea, preconceived idea you've been taught in your past that would encourage you to worship angels, to seek angelic mediation, to pray to angels. God has never intended us to approach him through angelic mediation. God has never told us to pray to dead spirits of people as a way to have mediation with God. God wants us to come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. And this is very, very important. So he says, beware of this. It will rob your spiritual life. It will defraud you of God's best. The third thing he says to beware of here in verse 18 is being misled by those who say they've had some spiritual vision or revelation. So therefore you should follow them because they have the secret of spiritual life. That's what he means in the end of the verse when he speaks of those people who would cheat you intruding into things which he has not seen that's just vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. One translation renders that this way. He says, they say, these people, that they've had visions and go into great detail about what they have not seen, but their sinful minds have puffed them up and made them proud just wanting to be elevated. And this is the idea here. The, the idea of the Gnostics. Again, there was and there will always, always be people who are going to give the impression, again, of being deeply mystical, higher in their spiritual status than other common people, and will at times begin to give an indication they've received some type of spiritual revelations from God, personal for them, and so now, because they've received these spiritual revelations, they have these spiritual secrets and these spiritual keys. And so therefore, you should follow them. Or if you follow them or their system of spiritual life, they can bring you into these deeper things because they have the keys 
or special glasses to see and interpret something. They have these keys and mysteries that God gave to them. And the Bible is saying, listen, when you see that stuff, beware of that nonsense. Beware of that. Of those who would say, hey, I've had some revelation, follow me. Paul says, verse 19, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the problem with those individuals is they're not holding fast to the head. That's the Jesus from whom all the body is nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments and grows with the increase that's from God. So people who are doing what's described, loving being admired because they're so humble, false humility. People who are worshiping or seeking angelic spirits and beings. Those who are saying spiritual life is mainly about experiences and having these deep mysteries to find he says, though those people may feel spiritual and they may try and give the impression they're spiritual, Paul says the great problem is they've actually lost proper hold on what spiritual life is all about. Jesus. The person of Jesus. And holding to Jesus. And, and staying connected to Jesus. He says they've disconnected from the Lord, which is the most important thing of all disconnected from the head and now the whole body begins to suffer spiritually as a result notice we're told here in verse 19 that god supplies life and power for spiritual growth and increase he's the one that's the source and that comes as we remain connected to the head jesus christ that's how we grow and increase this is what jesus talked about remember in john 15 when he said i'm divine you're the branches if you abide in me you'll bear fruit. And he says, if you don't remain connected to me, he says, there's no life. You won't be fruitful spiritually. And Jesus reduced spiritual life to, listen, the simple key, the simple key. Jesus said, this is what it is. Remain connected to me. It's simplicity. Not this rule, that rule, this ritual, that ritual, this list, this read this much, pray this much, and, and all these, you know. Jesus said, just remain connected connected to me remain in relationship to me stay in close relationship with me and when a believer turns away from holding on to jesus to pursue other things listen whether it's religious practices that we feel spiritual about or whether it's seeking spiritual experiences because we think it's all about experiences when we turn to those other things we become disconnected from where the true source of the power of god comes from to nourish us and to help us grow and increase in the spiritual life without a connection to the head of the body which is jesus as well let me just say a church cannot grow spiritually notice i didn't say numerically a, a church may be able to grow numerically apart from jesus just like you market a business and you can make businesses grow by good marketing efforts and taking care of your customers and clients and so on and so forth but a church can't genuinely grow spiritually increase spiritually in health and maturity if it disconnects from jesus and an increase in church attendance is not always the same thing as an increase in spiritual life Amen. and spiritual health i'm not saying the two can't go hand in hand but they're not always the same and god wants us to grow but notice he wants us to grow with the true increase that comes from god that it's spiritual increase growth this morning i would say this how is your spiritual health are you growing and increasing spiritually? 
And I would encourage you, as I would myself, it's not about spiritual experiences foremost. It's about walking close with Jesus. Perhaps some of us may need to disconnect maybe from some things that we've implemented into our spiritual lives that could actually be robbing us from growing spiritually because we're more consumed with observing these things than we are just having a healthy, loving relationship with Jesus. Maybe some of us need to be intentional this morning about reconnecting to Christ. love that song that came out years ago. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. So he says, beware of these things. And then the final warning he gives is in verse 20 through 23. And it's a warning, as I said, to beware of what's called asceticism. He says in verse 20, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you still subject yourselves to regulations, such as do not touch or don't taste this or do not handle that, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Now, again, as they talk about a warning of asceticism, as I said, asceticism is that severe self-discipline. It's a practice of avoidance of all forms of indulgence for religious reasons where a person thinks if I just deprive myself and deprive my body and abuse myself and afflict myself, that that will help me become more holy. And it will help me to somehow overcome the, the bodily appetites and diminish my desires and find higher spirituality. And there were those who were indicating through the Gnostic heresy that if you lived in an ascetic way and you just deprived yourself, that that would help you have victory over your sinful nature. And so if you just brutally you know, deprived yourself of any indulgences and refrained, that would be the way to overcome sin. And Paul's saying, don't be enslaved to that nonsense. He's saying, don't, don't, don't believe that rigid lifestyle of refraining from everything to try and get more holy or practical or defeat your flesh is not going to work. Here's the first reason why. Because your flesh can't overcome your flesh. Well, that's novel, isn't it? It, it, victory comes through the power of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's saying in these verses simply, if you've been unified, we've talked about this in great detail, with Christ and you died together with him from all the worldly things and, and you are now one with Christ, why would you take your cues then from worldly ideas, he says, and go back to, to submitting yourself to the regulations of worldly men who are saying things, verse 21, like, you better not touch this. And don't taste that. And don't do this. And, and you can't do that if you want to be a real Christian. And if you want to stop sinning, you need to do this and you need to do that. And, and, and have all, count the ten and don't do this. And, and he says, why would you subject yourself to those things? He says, first of all, these are all man-made ideas. These are just rules that men, half of them aren't even, majority of them aren't even scriptural. They have no scriptural basis. They're just men's ideas of what they perceive a holy man or woman does or doesn't do. You know, if, if you love the Lord, then you don't do this and you can't do that. And he says, look, these are rules and restrictions according, he says, to the commandments and doctrines, verse 22, of men. And they're all going to perish. Again, because even religious tradition, people are always changing their minds about everything. He says the problem is a list of religious rules 
and restrictions doesn't supply power to overcome the power of our sin nature. That's why he says, verse 23 there, look at these things, they have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. See, just restraining myself from doing certain things through self-denial and discipline alone is of no value in overcoming my sinful nature. And I'll tell you why. Because if you have a strong enough desire to do something, there ain't no law that's going to stop you. We live in a land that's filled with laws. When people have evil desires, the law doesn't stop everybody. If your desire is strong enough, there's no law that's going to stop you. No prohibition. You're going to fulfill your desire. And the same is true spiritually. These things may appear wise, you know, self-imposed religion. We make ourselves submit to all these standards of self-imposed, what it means to be religious and spiritual and false humility where we, again, deny ourselves. We want to appear humble and holy, but then what's the problem? And then as soon as nobody's watching, in private life, we just turn around and indulge that sinful thing. Or he says here, just the neglect of the body. You know, you're neglecting your physical desires, but God's saying that's not the root issue. God's given us bodily appetites and desires. The root issue is there's something in our heart that needs a higher power to overcome. He says this is of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. See, doing these things, living religiously, doesn't remove the power of my sin nature's desire. It's of no value. I can follow all the rules I want. I can, you know, go on a quote-unquote diet from participating in every yucky, ungodly, evil thing in this world and live like a hermit high up on a pedestal away from every human being and every evil thing and just seclude myself. I'm just going to deny and deny and deny and that'll help me to stop having bad desires. No, it won't. No, it won't. Because it doesn't remove the sinful nature within. In fact, let me be very candid, rules often stimulate the sinful desire. Right? If I said, we don't have grass, but if I said, put a sign out there, no walking on the grass. Do you want to know the first thing would happen? Everybody would leave church. They'd see, don't walk on the grass and say, I can walk on the grass if I want to. Nobody's going to control me. Who's going to tell me not to walk on the grass? It would stimulate your desire to want to do what's wrong. That's what laws and rules do. Do you want to know how to overcome your desire to indulge your sinful nature? It's, it's not focusing on your sin. Focus on Christ. Focus on Jesus and the power that Jesus can give to you. In order to overcome the power of the flesh, you need a greater power within. The Bible says it's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that helps us overcome the law of sin and death that's working. It's the higher law, the law of the power of Jesus Christ working in you. Again, can I say this? Remember, don't complicate things. Keep it simple. The Bible says it this way. Do you want to stop sinning? The Bible says this. You're struggling with sin in some way? Walk in the Spirit and you won't gratify the lust of the flesh. You can't do both at the same time. So don't focus on, I got to stop walking in the flesh. I got to stop walking in the flesh. I got to stop walking. What do I do? I got to stop walking. Just focus on walking in the Spirit. Just start focusing on Christ and intentionally try to walk in the Spirit. And if you're walking in the Spirit, guess what? You won't walk in the flesh. You'll begin to start overcoming as the power of Christ is working through you. Let's stand together. Let's pray.